Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Genocide Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host today, Jeff Bachman. Thank you all for listening. Today, we will be talking to Dr. Eyal Mehraz uh, about his very new book, Reluctant Interveners, America's Failed Responses to Genocide from Bosnia to Darfur, published on November 15th by Rutgers University Press. This book was really of special interest to me because my own research on UN Security Council recognition of genocide uh, or really general general lack thereof, and my research into the relationship between the U.S. and genocide. So I'm looking forward to discussing America's failed response to genocide with our guest on today's show. Ayol Mehraz, welcome to the show. Ayol, I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself. Sure. Uh, thanks, uh, Jeff, for inviting me. Um, I grew up in, on a kibbutz in Israel and uh, uh, I guess was educated in Israel uh, uh, worked as a farmer and moved from there to uh, the army, as all Israelis do, and was uh, a captain in counterterrorism intelligence. Then left the army, went traveling around the world for five years, including a 30,000-mile trip around the U.S., and then uh, ended up in Egypt, worked for five years in aviation security and counterterrorism in, in Cairo Airport. And 20 years ago, found myself in Australia, where I did my master's, PhD, and now teaching at Sydney Uni. It's an interesting uh, pathway. So um, what are your, uh, I'm sorry, how did you become interested in in studying genocide? And do you have any uh, mentors or peers that you work closely with? Yes. uh, (laughs) uh, Actually, there's a bit of a story there as well. Um, In 2005, I was... uh, a website developer in Alice Springs in the middle of Australia and visited my family in Israel. I was listening intently to a radio coverage of a Jewish extremist who went into an Arab, Israeli Arab village and shot three uh, innocent citizens. But after 10 minutes on the radio, the announcer said, we have to stop this special coverage because there is this soft music program on the radio and our listeners would be very disappointed if we stop the coverage and miss out on the music. And I got so angry because if it would have been the other way around, uh, if an Arab would have killed Israelis, no one would have dared doing that. So there and there I sat down and I said, I've got to study something that has to do with human rights violations. Found the course on on, uh, Peace and Conflict Studies, a master's course, and that led me to the PhD. But because as an Israeli living in Australia, it's a bit hard to work on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict because Israelis then tell you, oh, it's very easy for you to be far away, safe and healthy and, and, and write about or research the conflict. I was really drawn to a genocide because my stepdad is a, is a well-regarded genocide scholar, Professor Yehuda Bauer, a scholar of the Holocaust. And uh, I, he's an inspiration as well as linking to your other question about mentoring. He's been my mentor for a long time. Wow. I did not know that he was, you said your stepfather, is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. I did not know that. Uh, interesting, interesting background. Um, so with that, and, you know, we'll get into the book some more, but uh, it just made me think of another question. Uh, so taking all this background, why did you choose to focus on the United States and its relationship with genocide? Okay, that leads to my second inspiration for the book, which is uh, <laughs> Professor Eric Kreeves, uh, 
many of you have probably heard his name, a professor of English who spent the last 20 years as a one-man army fighting for the rights of uh, first the South Sudanese and then the Darfuri people. And when I was doing my master's, I started reading his uh, very sharp analysis. It used to be said that even at the State Department, they'd read first what Eric has written about uh, Darfur and only then go and read what the CIA was writing. So I was so impressed by his life story, the challenges that he was facing per personally, and at the same time, uh, un unceasingly working for the, for the Sudanese people, that uh, he was my inspiration for focusing on uh, on this topic. Thank you. And so that, I guess, leads into a bigger question, which is how did you come to write this particular book? Uh, what motivated this study? And how does it connect to previous scholarship on this topic? Yes. Um, well, the, the question I started off with was why do governments allow, and I, I was initially looking at the international level, why do governments allow mass atro atrocities and the killing of, you know, sometimes hundreds of thousands of people go without a strong international response. So that's how I started off. And then very soon after, I realized that the answers were pretty straightforward. Um, you know, governments how take, you know, the, the, the uh, hard interest that they uh, take into account when um, making decisions about foreign policies and so on. And, but the question that I could not answer was where are we as citizens, where the public, in allowing our governments to get away with bystanding to genocide? So that led into the research that led to the book. And the focus on the U.S. was because the U.S. was, first of all, you know, one of the uh, superpowers, I guess, but also because in the case of the U.S., the as a self-appointed champion of human rights, the rhetoric the, the moralizing rhetoric on genocide, on, on human rights violation is, is quite strong, uh, but the actions are often quite weak. And that gap was really of concern to me. In terms of linking to the, uh, to the existing scholarship, it was also interesting because uh, since, I guess, to around 2002, when Samantha Power uh, published her uh, award-winning book, uh, America... A problem from hell. Uh, nobody has written a full, uh, except for you, I think, just very recently. No one has uh, addressed the question of U.S. Uh, foreign policy on genocide, and I think possibly nobody dared trying to, uh, you know, compete with uh, Samantha Power. But, but uh, I, I, I found uh, important gaps, especially because of what had happened in Darfur, because. Uh, Power and, and two other authors that wrote their books at about the same time, Kenneth Campbell and, and Peter Ronine, uh, wrote their books shortly before Darfur had happened. And, and I think Darfur has floated a lot of important questions that were not addressed in their books. So, so that was the reason why I found this gap and was really interested to explore. Uh, the other point was that I've, I, over the last, I don't know, uh, certainly 10 years, uh, we see uh, what I see as a paradigmic shift in the relationship between a mass opinion and, and elite opinion. And that, especially in today's world with nationalist populism coming into the picture, I, I was feeling that there is a, an unaddressed opportunity 
to uh, uh, look more closely at what the public thinks about these uh, issues of uh, foreign policies, I guess, on, on certainly on mass atrocities, because for a long time, scholars have said, oh, we focus on the international settings, or they say uh, states are not built or designed to uh, focus on, on moral imperatives, and therefore uh, NGOs were left alone in the campaign to try and and get publics, uh, you know, five or seven billion people around the globe to take active part in what we all see as genocide scholars as a huge uh, omission on the part of the international community. So, so that was another uh, big incentive for me. Since you brought up uh, Smith Howard, can you talk a little bit about where your research converged with and where it diverged from her own findings? Sorry, whose findings? Uh, sorry, Samantha Power, specifically, you know, on the question of, of, of political leadership, um, you know. Uh, yeah, yeah, sure. Well, Samantha Power did a, a great job uh, and uh, very hard to, uh, I mean, to uh, augment things that she did cover in great detail. However, uh, two things I found that were a bit problematic. One was her focus was mainly on omission. And uh, as a result, and possibly on her part inadvertently, the discourse about uh, especially U.S. foreign policy relationship with uh, genocide has been focused much more on omission than on anything else. And as a result, a lot of other genocides were left to the sidelines because we we got so used to thinking about uh, U.S. foreign policy on genocide in that respect. I thought, uh, I mean, there has been quite a bit of scholarship since on indigenous genocides and so on, but I thought in terms of the U.S. policy that that uh, needed to be uh, addressed much uh, much more seriously. The other point that I was concerned about was that, uh, or, or thought uh, is worth further research, was that one of uh, Samantha Power's conclusions was that genocide was lost uh, in the domestic sphere, and I wanted to examine that following Darfur, which was, again, the first time that uh, the U.S. government or any government uh, issued an official genocide determination on, on a still ongoing genocide. And I was wondering how do the uh, domestic dynamics in the U.S. compared with the international dynamic and the eventual uh, uh, international inaction and leaving the Darfuri people to their to their grim uh, uh, consequences of the genocide. Related to all that, you know, there's you know this 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 disconnect, excuse me, between rhetoric and policy actions. Um, I definitely want to get more into the Darfur case, but I, just to take a couple of steps back for the moment, why did you choose to focus on the public and on its relationship uh, with the public opinion, the media, and policy, and uh, sort of the cascade and how, you know, information sort of flows from the executive down and also back up. And um, and then also, why isn't the public more actively involved? Sure, sure. That's really the crux of my research and, and, and the greatest, um, you know, significance I see in the book, because uh, we are we are so used to, again, discounting the public that we don't really uh, ask ourselves in, in as researcher in greater detail what is particular to the issue of genocide in relation to public inaction. So when you look at uh, at uh, opinion polls, for example, the last thirty years, consistently uh, most Americans uh, support stronger action 
on US uh, on the part of US foreign policy in stopping or preventing genocide. And that for me was uh, um, contrasting sharply with the fact that when uh, the US, international, but let's talk about the US, when US governments uh, avoided acting on genocide, there was what, uh, or at least there was supposed to be what uh, Samantha Power called a society-wide silence in the U.S. in the face of this inaction. So what I wanted to see was how do you uh, how do you explain how do you reconcile beyond the you know the simplistic explanations this gap between um, strong uh, support in opinion polls and and uh, an acquiescence to to inaction. Um, and I saw that both at the level of the of, uh, official America, in terms of a, uh, at times strong moralizing rhetoric by presidents, by governments, uh, or by administrations, uh, compared to often uh, inaction in the face of genocide, and at the same time with the public on again, as I said, a strong support to. Uh, U.S. action and at the same time uh, acquiescence to inaction. So I wanted to examine and explore these relationships between the uh, the uh, public and and the and executive uh, branch. And of course, uh, when you talk about that, it's all about or much of it is about the flow of information up and down the the uh, uh, this relationship and the media is the conduit of that information uh, both ways from the uh, official America to the public and from the public to official America because uh, my argument is that uh, uh, for officials to interpret what the public thinks about uh, a particular uh, uh, action or inaction uh, is something that they learn mostly from uh, the flow of the information through the media. So, so obviously this relationship of public or opinion, policy, and the media was at the heart of my research. And what did you find in sort of the cascade down from the presidency? What did you find in terms of the actual use of the term by U.S. presidents in the um, the timeline that you looked at? I mean, I know that there was sort of a used it sometimes, but oftentimes it wasn't used to talk about a specific genocide or it was used ex post facto. So you yeah, want to talk a little bit about uh, what you found from the presidency? Yes, sure. Um, there's a. Uh, it's you know it's become very famous that uh, on cases such as Rwanda, the uh, reluctance by the by the first Bush and uh, sorry the the Clinton administration. Bush was in relation to Bosnia, but the Clinton administration, to use the, the genocide word, uh, was uh, pointed to as an example of uh, of the fear of using the gen- genocide label and what that would uh, what. How would that affect uh, policies, and how would that affect public uh, support for action? But uh, beyond that, I wanted to look uh, much more closely at uh, you know the last, uh, if you like, seventy years, and how did uh, presidents used or avoided the the terminology, and what were the um, both the uh, motivations for doing that, but also the effects on on policies and and I found some interesting things uh for example uh for a long time the word was not at all used by by presidents and if it was used it was mostly in benign uh uh context around the uh, genocide convention and uh, you know the 40 years that it took uh, for the US to ratify the the convention so here and there discussions about that but on, so only 
I guess since the 70s, uh, 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 American presidents started using it uh, more closely. And I was uh, really concerned because uh, if you look at the literature on the effects of the uh, of the genocide label, there's a lot of assumptions there by, by genocide scholars, but uh, there was not strong uh, evidence to support those assumptions. Uh, David Sheffer in uh, 2006 raised the question about uh, replacing the word or augmenting the word uh, genocide with a broader terminology of uh, of mass atrocity uh, crimes. And uh, for a brief time, there was a big discussion about what are the consequences of the word. But again, it was left mainly at the level of assumption. So I wanted to to dive into that. And, uh, and uh, my assumption was that when uh, executive branch or the administrations are interested to uh, lead the public towards uh, some kind of intervention, as it happened eventually in Bosnia or, or certainly in Kosovo, then they'd be using uh, the word. And in other cases where they want support for inaction, they'd be avoiding the word. And uh, I found uh, it's there's a lot of details about that in the book, but I found some interesting things that uh, in some cases supported the uh, the consensus or, or, or what uh, – you know these assumptions, but in other situations, uh, uh, quite quite negated uh, those uh, those assumptions. And and uh, Darfur was a great. Uh, uh, it's hard to say great for for such a terrible tragedy, but it was an important uh, case study to to um, explore that question because uh, it was the first time that the word was used officially by the U.S. Yeah, and so the the case of Darfur, um, you know, talking about sort of public um, activism and and the public opinion, as a case that was referred to as genocide, as we just discussed by the Bush administration, and when that included a pretty large activist movement, what did you find in your research on Darfur, and and did it surprise you at all? Sorry, what did I find in the research about? About Darfur, yeah, um, in this sort of engagement with um, the, the, the public and the presidency or the executive and did you find anything surprising in that research compared to other cases? Yes, I, I found on one hand, I found, uh, uh, I guess, a substantial uh, change from the past. Uh, uh, American presidents consistently avoided using the terminology. And here we see suddenly in Darfur um, an official uh, determination. So I wanted to, uh, you know, pursue the the evolution of the use of the terminology from uh, 2003 into 2004, and from uh, ethnic cleansing into the use of genocide. What what uh, motivated what? What preceded what? And and there were certainly uh, you know quite uh, a, quite a significant, uh, if you like, a historical evolution to trace uh, within those uh, uh, a bit more over a year. Uh, I'd say that um, in Darfur, it seemed like the U.S. policy was. Uh, let's see. Uh, let's make sure first that even if we use the terminology, which was, uh, I guess, pressure, external pressure by domestic pressures by uh, NGOs and the public and the media uh, to call Darfur genocide. First of all, let's make sure that even if we use the terminology, we are not locking ourselves into uh, uh, a serious. Uh, um, responsibility to act very significantly on Darfur. 
And that was uh, encapsulated in repeated uh, discourse by Colin Powell to make sure that even if we uh, uh, use the word, it, the U.S. is already doing all it can and it's not going to make a difference. But on the other hand, and I see that within the uh, State Department, there was a strong uh, desire to uh, try to influence mainly the international community to upscale its involvement and the pressure on the Sudanese government to uh, stop the mass killings in Darfur. And there were, uh, there were these thoughts that by uh, first uh, exploring uh, and researching the, the uh, idea that Darfur was a case of genocide and then making that official determination, that would lead to, to a significant change in the international attitude. Uh, the fact was that uh, eventually that wasn't enough. Even uh, when a strong superpower such as the U.S. is making a, a, an official determination of genocide, that did not translate at the international level into significant action. And so my conclusion was that, at least in the case of Darfur, the genocide was not dealt with not because of domestic uh, U.S. policies, but because of international dynamics. Yeah. So with, with all that, you know, the... If I can add just one more point, uh, or just in, in response to uh, the same question, I guess, is that... Um, so I was saying that there was a desire to by the U.S. government to um, to try to uh, increase the the international action on Darfur, but at the same time a strong motivator was to uh, deal with uh, these uh, domestic pressures that were also coming from the uh, you know evangelist community and others that are you know the core support for the for the Bush administration. So there was a need to to alleviate those domestic uh, uh, pressures, and so that was another strong reason for the high level uh, U.S. Uh, involvement with Darfur. But uh, at all times, these efforts to try and, and push for stronger action on Darfur were still, uh, um, I guess, uh, uh, constrained by self-imposed uh, or keen. Uh, uh, view of the constraints, and some of these constraints were self-imposed by the U.S. itself. So effectively, at the end of the day, what had happened is what once the uh, U.S. failed to to elicit the international action and the uh, genocide, I guess, uh, toward, into the uh, end of 2004 and the beginning of 2005 continued, then the U.S. effectively left the uh, fate of the Darfuri people in the hands of the same government, same Sudanese government that they themselves uh, called a genocidary government. So, so at the end of the day, the the uh, executive branch did fail in its mission. So, responding without responding, in, in a way, I think um, it. Do you, if you take the case of Rwanda, where we, you know the United States actively avoided using the term until June, um, and then we look at the early use of the term in the case of Darfur, um, can you did this? Do you think this has any impact on the power of the term genocide? Do you think it's retained its significance that was attached to it when it was first developed, or uh, has it lost some of that impact? Uh, another another good question. In the book, I spend uh, quite a bit of work on on the relationship between Rwanda and Bosnia and the use of of the terminology or the avoidance on terminology and how did that 
you know, either accord or contradicted uh, the uh, U.S. action during, you know, the three months of the Rwanda and, and the three and a half years of, uh, of Bosnia. And I, one of the conclusions made by a lot of advocates following Rwanda that was that, or, or the assumptions was that, was that uh, if they'd uh, managed to get the U.S. to use the terminology, the genocide terminology earlier, things would have been different in terms of uh, U.S. intervention, international intervention. So when when Darfur uh, uh, happened, the, the, the efforts were all geared towards forcing the U.S. to admit uh, officially that uh, that uh, um, Darfur was a case of genocide. And I think I think that uh, uh, the ability of the U.S. to say uh, or to to actually uh, uh, issue the official genocide determination and at the same time uh, be able to get away with inaction or relative inaction uh, was uh, kind of led to the to the understanding that uh, a genocide determination can, at least in that case, could be used not as a call for action, but as a substitute for one. Sort of jumping uh, forward, some, and then we, we will maybe you know we'll end up taking a couple steps back. Um, but on the you know this, the power of the term genocide, there's been some recent research around whether you know, mass atrocity crimes should be uh, as a more useful term as an umbrella for genocide, crimes against humanity, war crimes, uh, and ethnic cleansing. Um, do you think it's important that we maintain the use of genocide to describe things that fit within you know, the legal or, or even scholarly definitions? Or does mass atrocities have greater utility for uh, policy purposes and, gen- and responses? Yes, uh, another, another good question, which is, I guess, at the heart of, of my research, um, I mean, David Sheffer made some convincing arguments in favor of uh, of uh, the use or or the 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 use of the terminology not only for uh, uh, in uh, for the legal purposes but also for for political purposes and 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 in terms of how it, things or events are represented in the media. Um, so I guess what I set out to to find out, or one of the things I set out to find out, was how valuable is the genocide terminology, and what are both the advantages and the and the disadvantages of using that. And and uh, it it is a bit difficult to um, many in many cases to disassociate or to or to disengage the effects of the genocide label from from effects of other either recurring or case specific uh challenges to action but uh, uh my my conclusions were that and it's only i think partial conclusion i think uh, more research is needed was that uh while uh you know the broader terminology of uh, atrocity crime uh goes uh, a certain way to uh, addressing some of the challenges uh, uh, of the terminology, and I may, I, I may say a few words about uh, the, these challenges, it also uh, does not fully um, capable of harnessing the clout that uh, Lemkin and others have uh, instilled uh, or embedded in, in, in the terminology of genocide. So, so I think my, my, I'm still out in terms of what exactly, uh, in, in what ways should we make best use of the terminology? I'm thinking maybe, uh, you know, something like, I don't know, uh, genocidal massacres or something that does not uh, 
pressures government to the extent that uh, a genocide determination does because governments, and especially in the case of the U.S., uh, are afraid to use uh, the genocide label because they're afraid that if they took action and then wanted to retreat because of you know changed dynamics or circumstances, then it'll be much harder for them if they've already used the terminology of genocide. So uh, in my research, I looked at 18 different recurring um, uh, challenges to international action and found that out of these 18, only two were specific to cases of genocide. So I found a lot more similarities between mass atrocities that were non-genocidal and genocidal mass atrocities in terms of these challenges than I found things that were specific only to genocide. So I think, uh, I, think uh, the, I, I embrace the use of the uh, terminology of, uh, of mass atrocity crimes, but I, I'm not fully committed or, or happy to uh, let go of, uh, of the terminology of genocide. Thank you. I, I think it's important also. I, I asked that question uh, by students before, um, just about the use of the term genocide uh, and whether it uh, raises any sort of increased ethical implications compared to other terminology. Um, and yeah, I agree with you. I think that was a, a good answer that I should remind myself when I get asked that again. Um, so jumping back to the, the role of the United States again, um, you talked a little bit about American exceptionalism and other things in your book about the United States and its relation with genocide. So I wonder, um, how is the United States different from other nations in terms of its relationship with genocide? How does the idea of American exceptionalism fit into that picture? Uh, and what about presidential leadership or, or lack thereof? Okay, uh, three questions. I'll try to remember. <laughs> you remind me if I forgot anything. But uh, First of all, I might start from the end because uh, that's the easiest. Uh, In my research, I looked at the the relationship between uh, uh, political leadership, and I focused mainly on presidential leadership and and, uh, responses to mass atrocities. And and, uh, I think there's a huge importance to uh, the adoption of uh, political leadership to leading U.S. foreign policy in a positive direction in terms of strong action on genocide and vice versa. Often when uh, we fail to act either as the U.S. or even the international community, it has much much to do with the absence of strong political leadership. And that political leadership can be uh, politi- political leadership within the opposition to to governments. And so uh, I, I would say that even in the case of Darfur, when uh, Colin Powell, you know, uh, a Secretary of State, a very high level official, is taking on himself to, to advance the, the case for Darfur, it wouldn't have been, it wasn't, and it wouldn't have been as strong as if, uh, the, if uh, President Bush had taken up that, uh, that uh, uh, task. And uh, maybe part of the reason why. Uh, as late as July 2004, only 14% of the American population um, knew some or much about Darfur had to do with uh, with this lack of, uh, of strong uh, uh, political uh, leadership that can uh, advance action not only within the administration, across the agencies and so on, but also uh, um, to the domestic uh, to the domestic uh, public and, of course, internationally as well. So in terms of political leadership, that's a a critical 
point uh, for me based on, on my findings. Um, in terms of uh, American exceptionalism, yes, I, and, and I, I think that li links well with the question about differences between the U.S. and the uh, and other countries. Two of, uh, of the three endorsements that I got from the, uh, uh, for the book cover from uh, prominent uh, genocide scholars, uh, uh, Ed Luck and uh, Andrea Bartoli, I used the word sober in my in my uh, about my research and. And I was a bit concerned because as an outsider to the U.S., I was wondering how do, uh, you know, American uh, scholars, uh, how would they perceive my my uh, research? Because I ha I hammer the U.S. foreign policy quite uh, quite powerfully and and have some strong uh, words for for public involvement as well. But I think the the sober comes with balance because at the same time, while I think the U.S. Uh, you know with this strong rhetoric and weak action is uh, you know, should be looked at and certainly condemned when it when the time is right. I think there's a tendency around the world to uh, very easily blame the U.S. for things that other countries are as at least as guilty of, and as and in the case of Darfur, even even guiltier of. So I think the U.S. Uh, is coming out uh, quite. Clearly, as as a you know, uh, as a country, as a, as a strong power that could do more, and that uh, speaks or, or uses a stronger moralizing discourse than other countries, but uh, uh, I think that uh, the the malady is international. Everyone and many other governments, or most other governments, I would even say, are as guilty as the U.S. in terms of. Uh, of uh, uh, inaction and bystanding to genocide. Now, when it comes to the public, I think that the uh, that the significance and the level of uh, of uh, or, or I'd say maybe significance of the use of the terminology of genocide in dominant American culture might be stronger than in many other countries. So that was another reason why I I chose to look at the U.S. But uh, again. We don't see, uh, you know, mass protests in I don't know in the UK or, or uh, you know, in in, in the developing world, uh, in against the government inaction on uh, on Darfur, for example. So, so I think that we need to take things into perspective. I think the US has uh, over there, especially over the 1990s, as a, and, and even before in the 80s, has abused the terminology of a of a humanitarian intervention for uh, self-interest purposes, and that colored a lot of what the U.S. was doing uh, overseas, a lot of the U.S. foreign policies in quite uh, negative uh, uh, colors to wide uh, uh, you know, publics around the world. Um, so it's very easy nowadays to, to hammer uh, U.S. foreign policy because of these uh, you know, uh, failed, uh, failed actions or, or I'd say even uh, disingenuousness on the part of uh, the U.S. Uh, but uh, again, uh, we need to look at it more internationally. And when we look at it internationally, then, then uh, I, I'd say that not many other countries are doing better. Thank you. My, uh, you mentioned my, my book earlier. Uh, another genocide scholar um, critiqued it for um, it's Marxist, you know, quote unquote Marxist analysis of U.S. foreign policy. Um, you know, and the, the book certainly um, 
had a specific, th- you know, I had a specific thing in mind with the book, um, and I uh, did not focus as much on sort of the international politics that also influence uh, U.S. foreign policy and and decisions. Um, but I, I wonder, you know, I as a, I am a U.S. citizen, um, and so I wonder, you know, what role I guess do U.S. citizens have in sort of making the U.S. the exceptionalist rhetoric sort of match the actions that are taken. Um, and maybe this comes to some of the findings in your book. And I know I had a question I was going to save for later, but I guess it comes back to this. Is there reason for optimism? What can we do to make that rhetoric a reality? Yeah, uh, you're right. That uh, This is uh, in the, you know, this question is at the heart of my, of my research because um, as, as I mentioned before that, you know, there's 5 billion adult people around the world uh, that don't have as much say about uh, about policies that are either make or break international intervention to uh, you know prevent the killing of hundreds of thousands and overall millions of people. So certainly uh, there should be more research focused on on the role of the citizenry as well as uh, why why don't we do as much as we should? And and I, I you know there's a uh, plenty of research. Some of it uh, is easily attributable to, to specifically to cases of mass atrocities. Other is more generalized. But but uh, this is something very important to look at because uh, you know NGOs are left to try and harness people to their causes, and I don't think research does enough to help support uh, uh, those efforts. So so if uh, if we look at uh, you know why do Americans and and likely others don't do more, then uh, certainly we are, uh, you know, as, as private citizens, we are so engrossed in our daily challenges that we are left with uh, relatively little time and and, uh, and motivation to act on uh, little known or little understood far away humanitarian um, events or tragedies in the other side of the world. We have uh, 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 limited ability to often to identify with the, with the people and therefore to empathize with them. Uh, we uh, the media is uh, is uh, often uh, um, sending the information, or or still even today with uh, social media, we're still getting mo- at least Americans are most of their information about these events uh, from mainstream media, and and the mainstream media is uh, to an extent, uh, 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 I guess. Uh, getting a lot of their information in turn from official sources. So governments, again, administrations in the, in the case of the U.S., have a lot of uh, of uh, leverage in how they frame the information that they uh, discharge to the to the media and to the public in terms of uh, what is that conflict about, who is responsible, what are the alternative uh, policy options that we can take, what can we do and what can't we do, and so uh, what I found in my research was that uh, uh, it is very easy to convince the public that uh, that there's not much that they as citizens can do or that even their countries, their governments uh, cannot do because so much of their knowledge is coming from information that is is framed purposefully for that purpose. So, so American uh, governments uh, or administrations have become really adept at, at uh, I guess, um, influencing or managing the public if you like based on a combination of uh, of uh, um, this uh, framed information 
uh, uh, half measure actions. And by half measure actions, I mean actions that seem to be doing something, but which they already know is not going to make a difference. And I'll give in a minute an example to that, or maybe I'll give it now. For example, uh, if you remember in, uh, I think it was in 2015, there was a lot of noise in the US following the discovery of use of chemical weapons in Syria. And so there was a pressure on the governments to do more. And then the Trump administration launched 59 Tomahawk missiles and blew up a a couple of sheds in a in a Syrian airport that uh, from where allegedly the uh, chemical attacks came about and and very soon after the feeling among the US public and certainly the coverage and so on was we did you know we we acted we did something and what can the blowing up of two sheds in in uh, in a Syrian airport base can do to stop the you know, massacres of hundreds of thousands of Syrians is, is of course, ridiculous. But, but the idea is to alleviate the consciousness of the people knowing that we did something. And that's what I mean by an example of half-measure actions. Um, so uh, uh, I guess, you know, a, a, and a third element is to use moralizing rhetoric uh, officially uh, by governments that are showing or, or pretending that we, are do- that we care but they are targeted very delicately not to impose on us responsibilities for action more than we are willing to take upon ourselves. So that's, uh, you know, the three ways of, of, uh, of uh, managing, if you like, the public uh, that has been in my research. I found that the American administrations, both Republican and, and Democrat, uh, have, uh, have been uh, uh, using. Yeah, so this you know seems to complicate things or it makes it complex for for the the publics whether it's um not wanting to intervene or intervening in a way that says we did something even if it's not really um especially effective um and then there's also the cases where you know you mentioned that inter- intervention in the past has been abused and so I, I wonder if you have any thoughts on how the US public can differentiate between you know the use of political leadership in a way that seeks to um, suppress any sort of ideas about, you know, the United States getting uh, proactively involved versus cases where political leadership is used to gain support for something that might not actually be in the best interests of uh, the people on the ground in a, in a conflict, let's say. Um, you have any, any thoughts on that? Yeah, yeah, I think it's an excellent question. And I certainly have, uh, have some thoughts about it. I think that, uh, um, Part of the problem is that when we talk about humanitarian intervention, we have this idea that humanitarian intervention is nothing short of a full-scale military action, and and in some cases, in extreme cases, that may be so. When you know, when tens of thousands or when up to ten thousand people get killed in Rwanda per day, then there's not much time to try out uh, non-military action. That is often, uh, uh, you know, it takes long to even realize if it's working or not. So, so there are extreme cases where where I would embrace, you know, strong and fast uh, military action, and uh, there's a contradiction there because if we're talking about uh, uh, you know launching a military action by by uh, by the UN to increase the legitimacy, which is such an important thing, then uh, it takes anywhere from three to ten months to to put together a force. So, so fast military action often can be done only by by states, and then you had the challenges with the with the legitimacy of that action, especially 
because in the past, as you say, there was so much abuse of, of humanitarian intervention uh, uh, ideas for, uh, for self-interest concerns. So, so uh, I think that's uh, uh, an important point to take into account. But having said that, I think that uh, humanitarian intervention is and should uh, convey a lot more than a, a full-scale military action, whether uh, uh, partial uh, coercive actions or even uh, more uh, uh, or, or more creative ways of using uh, completely non-military actions that don't involve the negative side effects and consequences of inevitable ones for, for military action. So I think we kind of uh, left it uh, as a given that uh, that not much can be done, for example, at the Security Council pressuring governments to do more. Uh, for example, if you look at Darfur, then without support from Russia and China, the Sudanese have, would not have continued uh, doing the genocide. And then the question is, how does the US or how does the international community uh, yield stronger pressure on on, on such powers as, as China and Russia? So I think there's a lot more room for action, and I think in some cases the failures to act and the allowing of, of genocide and other mass atrocities was the was the uh, consequences of uh, lack of of uh, of um, commitment by governments to some non-military actions that if they would have persisted and been more uh, proactive and and and, and active in. In engaging in them would have uh, would have stopped or would have changed the calculations of would of uh, either genocidaries perpetrators or even the government other governments who support them, and and would have uh, would have made a big difference. So so I'm with you on the fact that uh, we need to be very cautious when it comes to uh, military actions. I think if we're going back to the public, then for the public the sphere of casualties is also a very strong deterrent to action and so when you cast it as as all or nothing then uh, there's a lot less support by the public for uh, for interventions the last thing to say is that uh, prevention 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 that's always the the solution to intervention because if you prevent then you wouldn't need to intervene and and there's not enough uh, support there's not enough uh, public support uh, there are not enough resources, either uh, at, the, at the national level, but also certainly international level, to to prevent, and that's where the main uh, efforts should be taken to to preventative uh, action. You know, when you said about uh, Russia and China and and Dan, um, I couldn't help but think uh, you know, about the expression. I couldn't help but think, you know, the uh, the executive has not yet recognized the Armenian genocide. Um, and uh, because of its relationship with Turkey and coming back to that, uh, it just makes me think, you know, how much leverage does the United States have and how willing is it to wield it uh, from one situation uh, to another? I don't know if you want to comment on any of that, but I'll ask you one other question and then you can uh, address um, either if you wish. Um, you know, thinking also about military intervention, um, did you consider the Libya case at all when you were thinking about the cases for your book? Sorry, which case? Libya case with the intervention in 2011. Well, I I, I focus most of the research up to 2004, but I do uh, I think I do mention uh, Libya in the sense that uh, Libya was an example where uh, international action was very fast, and I think it was a, a consequence of a 
of an accord, and often uh, interventions are an accord between moral, uh, you know, imperatives, whether accurate or not, uh, leave it uh, for now, but moral imperatives, uh, uh, self-interests of governments, and legitimacy. And I think in the case of uh, of uh, uh, Libya, the, the the critical component was that there was a legitimacy uh, uh, given by the you know by the Arab League by by Muslim states that uh, supported the the action. And so uh, this relationship between legitimacy, uh, moral imperatives, legal imperatives, and uh, and political uh, considerations is a, is a fascinating one to um, to uh, pursue. Of course. Uh, what had happened in Libya uh, in the aftermath of the of the uh, initial uh, intervention, the uh, extending the the uh, the campaign to uh, change of uh, government, and and the devastating consequences uh, uh, that led to inaction in Syria because of that that precedence of uh, of Libya was uh, was very detrimental, and both I guess to to that and to the standing of uh, the R2P, the responsibility to protect doctrine that led. Uh, to the uh, intervention in Libya. Uh, you had another question uh, about... It was just about yeah, wielding or not wielding um, you know, leverage or uh, pressure on like China and Russia, but then not you know, Turkey and the Armenian genocide. Yeah, yeah. Look, uh, I think that's a, uh, you know, the, the, the uh, unanimous uh, decision by, uh, you know, by Congress on, on calling uh, uh, the Armenian genocide a genocide after so many, you know, decades uh, is certainly, uh, um, or almost a hundred years, is is certainly a, a clear example of how political considerations have such a strong influence on on decisions in that area. But I think uh, I think that, uh, uh, and I'm working with a group called the Genocide uh, uh, GPA Net, the Genocide Prevention Advisory Network. Would uh, we advise? Governments on uh, mass atrocity prevention, and and so I I've had over the over the years uh, some uh, uh, insights into looking at the inside of of uh, of uh, governments and 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 diplomacy and and these people that are are you know are diplomats and and working within bureaucracies where are they what can they do why are they doing things and why they're not doing things so I think that uh, uh, there is a lot more room to work from within the system. And I think that the scholars uh, should uh, pay a lot uh, closer attention and l- put a lot more effort into supporting those, uh, you know, often uh, mid-level uh, bureaucrats that are very good people that are trying to influence their governments into more conscientious and, and more, uh, uh, if you like, uh, uh, prevent- preventative or into more preventative policies uh, that we are as researchers uh, could do a lot more about. So I think, uh, um, you know, the same would apply uh, for certainly for the U.S., but uh, across the board. Thank you. I think that's a, a good optimistic note on, um, you know, that things can change and things can improve. Um, so I want to ask you uh, two final questions to, to wrap things up. Um, so first, uh, what were you most surprised by in your findings and then you can follow that with who do you like? Who's this book for? Who's the audience? Who do you want to read this book? Okay, uh, maybe I'll start from the second one. Uh, when you write a book, you have a big problem when you try to reconcile 
uh, what you're writing and how you write and what to include in the book based on the target audiences. And obviously you want as many types of audiences. I try to, uh, to, um, I try to write the book for a wide range of audiences from certainly uh, genocide scholars, uh, uh, media people, uh, policymakers, uh, um, NGOs, but also to and 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 obviously students, uh, but also uh, maybe targeted to uh, what you'd call concerned citizens, because I believe uh, that if I'm focusing on on uh, you know the public as as a potentially strong actor that has been missing in 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 the case of the US and and elsewhere on uh, policy decision making on on saving the lives of millions then these people are should be able to read and benefit from the findings of the book so so in terms of of the audience i would i would you know be i would feel really good if if all of these types of of audiences would be uh, you know be reading the book uh in terms of surprises i think it's more more um um I wouldn't call it a surprise, but the fact that there's so many assumptions, uh, and I think I've mentioned that already, uh, at the level of, of the genocide label, at the level of, of the public that we as scholars uh, kind of let aside or or don't spend as much time researching, uh, was, uh, was uh, um, I guess you could call it why, why is a surprise in the sense of why is that not taking more uh, or, or more center stage at uh, you know genocide studies that has been branching to so many directions. So I guess the book is a is a call for a more systematic research into foreign policy uh, making because we are used to uh, you know focus on international settings on the UN where decisions are being made, but these decisions are being made based on negotiation between uh, dominant countries. And the policies of these dominant countries are taking place domestically. And so in, uh, domestically, these governments are uh, you know, exposed to a, to a much greater level to uh, pressures uh, from the media and from the public and from NGOs. So I would like it to be such that the, we focus more on foreign policy making as a, as a way to change what is happening internationally. Great. Yes. Thank you. Um, just a, a quick note on on the book. It's I definitely found it very accessible um, and you know to a broader audience. So hopefully you'll get the uh, you know the variety of readership that you're looking for. Um, well, Ayo, we, we, we've taken up a lot of your time, um, and I know that you just have a brand new book out. But I was wondering before we let you go, if there's anything you might want to tell us, tell our audience about that you're working on currently. Um, yes, I. My, I have, I guess, I guess, two projects. One of them relates or is a continuation of the research in the book because uh, I said I mentioned that uh, the public is being swayed by by uh, purposeful framing of information, and I think information is a critical uh, point. And I've found that uh, in my research that NGOs throughout these, you know, uh, the 1990s and 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 Darfur and so on had the right early warning, they had the right risk analysis, and they had often very strong and, and important uh, policy uh, uh, proposals or recommendations to make, but their voices are often not heard. They're not heard by the policymakers, they're not heard by the public, and, and, and are not covered well enough by the media. So, so uh, 
one of the things that my group or members of my groups uh, are working on is is to uh, you know to uh, develop intergovernmental uh, collaborations on on making stronger stand at uh, international fora to to push uh, for stronger preventative action. But another one is to uh, convince the uh, I guess convince first of all convince the NGOs the human rights NGOs to work more collaboratively to making their voices heard through the media to uh, uh, by the public and by uh, even policymakers to make a big difference. So that's one project that I'm I'm thinking of working on both at the level of research and then at the level of how to implement that into uh, into a more effective uh, 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 dynamics or, or flow of information, if you like. Another is uh, I'm really concerned about popul- national populism and how uh, um, discrimination, racism, xenophobia are taking hold uh, in our in our midst, and I find very important uh, again correlations between the effects of fear that is both affecting how we react or not to mass atrocities and how we react or not to to uh, you know to these. Uh, uh, what I see as negative forces am, amongst us. So I'm I'm looking at the issues, and I would like to research more about ideas such as uh, white genocide, the the use the conspiracy theory that uh, white genocide is, and how to make the link between uh, neglecting faraway uh, conflicts in other countries where hundreds of thousands are being killed, and that we gotten so accustomed to being bystanders of, and uh, the fact that. Uh, all of a sudden, we are so concerned and see ourselves as potential victims when when mass refugee flows are are at our doorsteps, or when uh, international terrorism is risking, uh, you know, our, our, or at least uh, sowing fear uh, in our midst. And and so making that connection and trying to uh, maybe change the uh, cost benefit analysis of governments and the international community as a whole in favor of more prevention and more st- stronger action. So these are my two projects that I'm thinking of, uh, you know, working on or started working on. Thank you for sharing. It's such important work bridging the, the gap between scholarship and policy outcomes. So uh, thank you for your work and thank you for your time. Uh, it was great chatting with you about your new book and, and other things. And, um, and uh, you know, thank you and, and take care and have a good night or a good day. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for inviting me, Jeff. <laughs>